Hello, everyone. Greetings to those of you at our West Campus and those watching in our Traditions venue. So glad that all of you are here. Um, I'm just expectant about what God wants to do. You know, God is here. We're here and God is here. And when God is here, he touches people. He does things. When he speaks, you know, things happen, right? And so uh, I really believe God is going to speak to us through his word, and I'm excited about that. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 9. We are walking through this amazing book in the Bible, going verse by verse to learn more about who Jesus is. And what we're discovering is that sometimes the, the real Jesus, it's, Luke is based on eyewitness accounts, so sometimes the real Jesus, as described in the book of Luke, doesn't really fit our perception of Jesus. It doesn't fit the way that we envision envision Jesus to be, right? Typically, we envision Jesus as always being kind and loving and never getting angry or frustrated, you know, just a pleasant chap who wants everyone to, to you know, to feel good and to have a good day, right? A good time. Um, that, that's basically the American version of Jesus. That's who we, who we want Jesus to be. The problem is that version of Jesus can never contradict us or point out something in our lives that he doesn't like. In other words, the, 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 this very common version of Jesus has no power to really impact us. Following a Jesus of our own making doesn't result in any real transformation. See, what we really need is a Jesus who is not afraid to tell it like it is, right? Not afraid to tell that to us, who's not pulling any punches, who's not afraid to point out things in our lives that make him uncomfortable, things that, that may be challenging. And that's definitely the Jesus that we see in the book of Luke, especially in the passage that we're looking at today, because in this passage, we actually see a frustrated Jesus, a frustrated Jesus. Did you realize that Jesus can get frustrated? That word doesn't really fit our perception of Jesus, does it? But it is exactly what is described in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. So let me just kind of set the context here. The day before this happened, Jesus took three of his disciples with him to go up on a mountain to pray. And they had this amazing experience. KJ talked about it last week in the, in the message. Had an amazing experience where Jesus is transfigured. And he has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. It is a huge mountaintop experience for these three disciples and Jesus. But how many of us know what inevitably happens after a mountaintop experience? You come back from that vacation, that fantastic vacation, and discover that your basement is flooded, or you have 3,000 emails to answer, or your cat has decided to use your bed as his litter box, which actually happened to Raylene and I uh, years ago after a vacation. Our cat was mad at us for leaving, so he decided to use our bed as his personal dumping ground. Um, welcome back from vacation. So it is hard to come back to the real world world after a mountaintop experience. And that's exactly what Jesus experienced as well. As he comes down from the mountain, he is immediately confronted with some situations that clearly frustrate him. And in looking at these situations, we learn a great deal about Jesus 
and about what he values, what he's looking for from us, his followers. And so let's look, beginning in verse 37. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out but they could not. Okay, so Jesus and his three disciples that, that came with him, they come down from the mountain and there's this large crowd waiting for him. And a father comes up to Jesus and begs him to help his son. His boy is being tormented by a, a demon and it's destroying him. Jesus, can you help me? Again, welcome back to the real world, right? Jesus, welcome back. He, he is once again, after this mountaintop experience, he's once again faced with the overwhelming needs of humanity. But what adds to this moment is that this father has already asked the other nine disciples who didn't go up on the mountain. He has already asked the other nine disciples to drive out this demon, but they couldn't do it. Now, this is really odd because earlier in this same chapter, we see that these, we saw that these 12 disciples were given authority by Jesus to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And then they go out and they do that very thing. They go from village to village, healing people everywhere. But now this man asks them to cast out this demon and they can't do it. I mean, what is up with that? Well, notice Jesus' response, verse 41. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. This is not the response we would expect from Jesus, right? We would expect him to say in a, in, in a very gentle voice, that's okay, guys, nice try. That's okay, you know, bring, bring your son to me. I'll take care of this. Good effort, guys, good effort. But he doesn't do that. Jesus expresses frustration in this moment. You unbelieving and perverse generation. How long do I have to put up with you? This is hard. I studied this passage backwards, forwards. I studied all sorts of ways to try to, to just to find some hidden meaning that would make this statement sound more Jesus-like. <laughs> but I couldn't find it. It's not there. Okay, so what exactly is it that frustrates Jesus? Unbelief. Unbelief. A lack of genuine faith. That's what he's frustrated about. You unbelieving and perverse generation. So who is he referring to? His disciples. It doesn't make any sense if this was directed toward the Father, because every other time in the book of Luke, when someone comes to Jesus with a need, Jesus sees that coming to him as an act of faith. He sees that as a demonstration of faith. So he is not rebuking the dad. He's frustrated with his disciples' unbelief. Now, this, this word perverse is a bit confusing because we think of perverse as being perverse, right? Uh, you know, a, a pervert or whatever. But this word in this context, what it actually means in the, in the, in the, in the Greek here, it, it means to twist or to distort the truth. 
And see, here's what's happening. The disciples have already done this kind of thing before, and the, casting out demons. And they're pretty confident in their own ability. They've cast out demons. This is a no-brainer for them. So they try, and nothing happens. They maybe use the same words they used before. Nothing happens. Why is that? Well, in, in Matthew's version of this same event, the disciples actually go up to Jesus after the, Jesus takes care of this. They go up to him privately, and they say, why couldn't we drive it out? And he tells them, Matthew 17, verse 20, because you have so little faith. They're trusting in their own ability rather than Jesus' ability, which doesn't work. This isn't a formula. This isn't a formula. It is only through the authority of Jesus that these demon, this demon can be driven out. Their faith is what activates their authority that Jesus has given them. Their faith is what activates that authority. But for whatever reason, that faith has evaporated for the disciples. It has evaporated. And Jesus is frustrated. He's frustrated by that. We see this over and over um, in, in Scripture. That we, we, here's what I'm saying. Not that Jesus is frustrated. What we see over and over again in Scripture is that faith is what pleases God. Faith is what pleases God. More than anything else, God wants us to trust him. He wants us to lean on his power. He wants us to lean on his character and trust in his goodness. I mean, that's really what faith is. It is a decision to lean on Jesus rather than on ourselves. And these disciples had forgotten that. Just like we can easily forget that when we are confronted with a challenge or a difficulty. We can easily forget how faithful Jesus is and how he has come through for us in the past. We forget all of that. And instead, we instinctively begin to rely on ourselves. Instinctively. Even after he's done all these things, we instinctively begin to rely on ourselves, which then causes us stress and worry and anxiety. And I think... Jesus gets frustrated, not in a shaming sort of way, but more in a, don't you trust me yet sort of way. <laughs> don't you trust me yet? A few weeks ago, I was, I was trying to work on my message um, for the upcoming weekend. Wednesday is my big um, sermon kind of prep day, and I usually uh, don't have any appointments, try not to and take any phone calls. You know, I shut my door, and everyone around here kind of knows, you know, don't bother Alan, you know, it's Wednesday. And, and, and on this particular Wednesday, my message, <clears throat> it was not coming together. I had started it multiple times and then stopped it and then tried a different direction. Got it. it just was not working. So by mid-afternoon, this is two, three o'clock, I had nothing. I mean, I, I still had nothing and I was so frustrated and I was stressed. The weekend is coming and people are expecting a fresh word from God. And, and so as, I, as I'm staring at this partial and very lifeless message on my computer screen, I could feel the tension rising in me. I knew if I would go home, I'd be grouchy and angry. I'd be moping around. So, so I decided to not do that. I decided to go for a walk. And so I, I was just kind of around here and I was, I was just talking to Jesus about this. And I had this thought, I had this thought come to my mind that, that I believe was from the Lord. It was actually more of a question. Here, here was the question I heard. Alan, you've been doing this for 27 years. Have I ever failed to help you put together a sermon for the upcoming weekend? 
And I knew the answer. In 27 years, that's over, I, I figured it out, that's over a thousand messages. God has never failed me. He has never failed me. Why could I not trust him to do it again this week? See, in that moment, I think Jesus was a little frustrated with me. Again, not in a shaming, unloving sort of way. It was more of a, Alan, why are you so stressed about this? I have come through for you over a thousand times in a row. Do you think you might be able to trust me for this next week's message? <laughs> where, where was my faith? See, how often does Jesus have to prove himself to me before I start confidently trusting him? Trusting that he will give me the message that I need. Now, let me just ask, do you have an area like that in your life? An area that frequently causes you stress and anxiety. Perhaps Jesus wants to say to you, where is your faith? I have promised to lead you. I have promised to provide for you. I have proven myself to be faithful to you over and over again. When will you relax and just trust me? When will you relax and just trust me? He is faithful. <laughs> he is faithful and he wants us to trust him. That's all he wants, really. He just wants us to trust him. Verse 42, so even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So Jesus rebuked the evil spirit. The boy was healed. Everyone was amazed. See, friends, Jesus really can be trusted. He really can be trusted. He is Lord over every power and every authority, every circumstance. He wants you and me to trust him. He wants us to trust him. Okay, so let's continue on in this passage where we see another thing that frustrates Jesus. First of all, it's unbelief, right? Um, but that's not all. Verse 43, while everyone was marveling in all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, so here, here again, we see Jesus not really fitting well into our expectations. I mean, follow me here. The crowd is marveling at him. He just did this amazing miracle. The crowd is marveling at him. They are amazed, it says, at the greatness of God. This is a moment to enjoy. This is a moment to savor. This is a moment to deliver an amazing message about God's power and to invite more people to hear and experience Jesus. I mean, this is, this is about enlarging your platform, Jesus, right? Right? I mean, go on, go on Twitter. I mean, we could, we could Snapchat this, maybe a live Facebook feed. I mean, this would be great. But no, Jesus, right at this moment, Jesus gathers his 12 disciples. He takes them away from the crowd and he says, listen carefully. I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to be delivered in, 
to human hands. In other words, I'm going to have to endure horrible suffering. This was Jesus' mission, and he knew it. He knew what God the Father was calling him to do. And it didn't matter what the crowds were saying. He knew what God the Father was calling him to do. In fact, there is a critical verse in the the book of Luke where everything kind of shifts direction. And it's in this chapter, just a few verses later, in this chapter, verse 51. Look at this verse. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem. But he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Um, he, He was clear about his mission. And it was to get to a cross and lay down his life for us and then to be, to be risen from the dead. He was going to give his life for us so that we might have life in him. He was clear about his mission. And he just told the disciples, I'm going to suffer. Now, with that as the backdrop, look what happens next. Verse 46. An argument started among the disciples. And you know where this is headed. I'm sure many of us are right. Uh, Arguments started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. I mean, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding, right? Right after Jesus tells them about the suffering that he is going to endure, right after nine of them had been total ministry failures. Remember that? (laughs) That had just happened. Right after that, they are now arguing about who will be the greatest. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, it should be no surprise that Jesus got frustrated with him. Not only does unbelief frustrate Jesus, he is also frustrated by pride. He is frustrated by pride, by self-exaltation. That's what we see happening in this passage. These disciples are arguing about who would be the greatest. Now, we look at this passage. We look at this and we think, what is these guys' problems? What is their problem? Why are they always, they always seem to be arguing about this. And, and we, don't, we don't ever have conversations like this about who's the greatest, right? We don't, we don't sit around and compare who's the greatest. What is up with the disciples? Here's what we need to realize. We have the exact same struggle the disciples had. We just hide it better. We just hide it better. Let's be honest. How often on Facebook are we reading other people's posts and immediately comparing our lives to theirs and either feeling superior or more often than that, we're feeling envious. If she can have a body like that, why can't I? If they can take a vacation like that, why can't our family? Why don't I get bonuses like that? Why doesn't my spouse look like that? Right? There, there are multiple recent, and you can look them up on Google, multiple recent scientific studies, all of which, all of them reveal a direct connection between the amount of time spent on social media and depression. They actually have a name for this. They have a name for it. They call it Facebook Envy. You can look it up. Facebook Envy. We see what others are posting, and we feel more depressed about our lives. See, envy is a very subtle form of pride because at at its heart, envy is ultimately wanting glory for ourselves. We want to have what that person has. In fact, we deserve to have what that person has. 
This was Satan's ultimate downfall, right? This was his ultimate sin. Yes, it was pride, but ultimately it was envy. He wanted to be like God. He wanted that glory for himself. That, that's pride, but it manifests itself in envy. Because what we really want, what we really want is for other people to look at our Facebook posts and think, well, I wish I had what they have. <laughs> Which is why we show we only show selfies that make us look good, right? Uh, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so, so when, we, when we boil it all down here, we all long for glory apart from God. We all long for glory apart from God. That's pride. And it's incredibly destructive, which is why it frustrates Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Jesus uses an object lesson to communicate God's value system because it's totally opposite our value system. While they were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus takes this little child and, and, and who in that society was not highly valued. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. In other words, when we choose humility, when we choose to value other people, regardless of their status or their age or the blessings they experience, when we choose that, we are valuing Jesus. We're valuing Jesus. In God's kingdom, the least among us is the greatest. See, humility is the virtue that God loves and, and he delights in. But pride, he hates. There are plenty of scriptures that say that. God hates pride. Verse, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble and to the oppressed. It is no wonder that Jesus is so frustrated by pride. It's because it is completely counter to the values of the kingdom. Okay, so envy is one manifestation of pride, but there are other ways that pride manifests itself. Look at the next verse, verse 49. Master, said John, <clears throat> we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. <laughs> Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So see, John tried to stop another person from driving out, driving out demons in Jesus' name. This person, this other person, was using Jesus' name to help people. Imagine that, using Jesus' name to help people. But John didn't like that. In fact, did you notice this little phrase? He is not one of us. He's not one of us. That's pride speaking. See, pride creates this us versus them mentality. It creates all of these religious divisions, right? Where we think we're right and everyone else is wrong and we feel theologically superior. So we look down on people who are doing ministry differently than we would do it or who have a different perspective on baptism than we do. You know, it, it doesn't matter that they, it doesn't seem to matter that they love Jesus. We know how to do ministry better. We have the correct doctrine on baptism, how, how people should be baptized. See, this is all just pride manifesting itself. 
but under a very spiritual facade. Now, this pride thing can go way beyond religious issues. Look at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. I mean, you got to love James and John. I mean, these guys are problem solvers, right? They're problem solvers, you know? So, I mean, when they heard this Samaritan village refused to welcome their guy, you know, refused to welcome Jesus, they thought to themselves, hey, let's just call fire down from heaven to destroy them. I mean, what? I mean, what in the world? Why, why that response? Well, Samaritans were despised by Jews, right? That's what's going on here. This is a Samaritan village despised by the Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. They thought, viewed them as dirty and disgusting. They looked down on their ethnicity and how they kind of mixed Jewish customs and religion with their own. And so they just looked down all sort of their culture. And that, that explains why James and John just want to obliterate them. But this is pride manifesting itself. We look down on people who are of a different ethnicity or a different culture than us or who have a different viewpoint or a different lifestyle than us. And that feeling of superiority can easily lead to disgust or hatred, which then often leads to violence. I mean, this past week, just another example in Washington, D.C. of violence over people we disagree with. All the terrorism that we see today, all of it is rooted in these deeply held feelings of superiority and looking down on other ethnicities or other religious backgrounds or other values. But, it, but it's not just terrorists who struggle with this. I mean, we can, you know, blame terrorists. It's not just terrorists who struggle. Let's just be really honest here. I mean, and, and we, we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. It's, it's pervasive in our culture. One of the characteristics of our society today is the offended self. Everyone is offended, right? Everyone is mad about something. They're offended by something. <clears throat> so on, on some college campuses, when someone dares to speak a dissenting view, they are shouted down so that they can't even speak. See, what is that? This is not social justice reacting. This is pride. It's pride. My opinion is so much more valuable than your opinion that I'm not even going to let you speak. I don't even want to hear what you have to say because it's wrong. Make no mistake about it. That is self-righteous pride. It is self-righteous pride masquerading as moral indignation. It's destroying any sense of respect and decency toward other people with whom someone disagrees. And it frustrates Jesus, especially when it shows up among his followers. We are to be, as followers of Jesus, we are to be the most unoffendable people on this planet. We are to be the most unoffendable, humble people on the planet. 
Now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't hold to truth. It doesn't mean that we don't proclaim truth. But the way we do it is to be radically different than what we see in James and John, certainly, and, and in our society today, which is why Jesus turned, and I, I, we don't even have words here. I think he was like, you have got to be kidding. You know, he just rebuked him. We don't know what he said, but he just rebuked them. So let me just ask another kind of hard question here, but let me just ask, where, where is pride manifesting itself in your heart or my heart. So where are you longing for more glory for yourself and less for other people? How do you view and treat people who are from a different ethnicity or a different religion or have a different political perspective than you do? Or how do you view or treat people who are experiencing blessings that you are not experiencing? Through the lens of anger, hatred, envy, or through compassion and humility? Okay, so there's one more thing. Sorry, we got one more point here. So it's already kind of heavy here, but, uh, um, but that's, that's tough stuff. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And we see how it manifests in his disciples who think they're doing this for spiritual reasons, wanting to wipe out an entire village. What is that? But we all are vulnerable to this, this kind of mindset. Which leads to the one other thing that frustrates Jesus. And that's what, that's what I would call lip service. Lip service. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines lip service as allegiance expressed in words but not backed in deeds, lip service. Allegiance expressed in words, but not backed in deeds. And that's exactly what we see happening in the next portion of this passage. Look at verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is, again, a very un-Jesus-like Jesus, <laughs> right? But it's in here, you know. Does, doesn't he welcome all people? Doesn't he lower the bar so anyone can follow? I mean, apparently not. Here, No doubt Jesus wants everyone to follow, but he doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't lower the bar. We have a tendency to lower the bar, but Jesus doesn't do that. For Jesus, the message is clear, right? The, the message is clear. Count the cost before you say yes to me. Count the cost before you say yes to me. Because it's easy to say yes, but count the cost so that your yes is not just lip service. Jesus is saying, look, count the cost because it's not going to be easy to follow. It will require some sacrifices. So for the first man here, the sacrifice was physical, living in hard conditions. Jesus is saying, look, I don't even have a house. You want to follow me? Great, but I don't have a house. 
So he was just kind of painting this picture, this clear picture, physical, physical issues in terms of some of the, what following Jesus may involve. It's going to be hard. The second person who asked to go and bury his father, the sacrifice was related to timing. Jesus' response here may seem cruel, um, but in all likelihood, the man's father hadn't died yet. So he was saying, Jesus, I'll follow you in a few years after my father has gone. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The time is now for you to say yes to me. The time is now. Maybe Jesus is saying the same thing to some of you, some of us here. The time's now. No more delaying until you graduate. No more delaying until your kids are grown up or until you're married or whatever. The decision to follow Jesus is a decision that takes precedence over every decision, over every decision. And the time is now. The time is now. The third man faced a, a similar decision. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he also wanted to go back and say goodbye to his family. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God, right? Trying to plow when you're looking back. I mean, that's the, the image here is, is, is very vivid. See, for Jesus, the bottom line was obedience to him, first and foremost, that's what following Jesus means. It's, it's not just words. It, it's, it actually means following Jesus. It means obeying him. It means letting him call the shots in our lives rather than ourselves. And I think Jesus is frustrated when we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. When we give lip service to following Jesus. So in our worship services, we freely express our love and our admiration to Jesus, right? Singing with gusto and all of that. But when push comes to shove, when obedience to Jesus, that coming week, when obedience to Jesus is hard, when it requires some sacrifice, we choose not to follow him. What is it costing you to follow Jesus? What is it costing you to follow Jesus? Is there an area that he's calling you to obey him in and you are consistently saying no? Now, while we know, we know that Jesus loves us no matter what we do, and if you're part of Christ's community for any length of time, you know that the, the, the gospel, we get this, and we proclaim it regularly. We know Jesus loves us no matter what we do. We also know from this passage today that Jesus can be frustrated by our unbelief. He can be frustrated by our pride. He can be frustrated by our lip service to him. What he's looking for is faith, humility, and a wholehearted commitment to him. Those things delight the heart of Jesus. And they also result in our lives being transformed by him. Our lives transformed by him as we follow him and say yes to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, these are some heavy passages. Honestly, sometimes I think we just prefer to skip over these. 
because they're hard. And they expose our hearts in some really uncomfortable ways. So I just want to, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to, and here's the question, what is Jesus saying to you? So Holy Spirit, what are you saying to each one of us here from this passage? For some of us, what he's saying is about our unbelief, how quickly in the midst of difficulty, we stop trusting him. <laughs> Even though he's been faithful multiple times, we, we stop trusting him when things get kind of hard. And we start relying on our own ability to fix it or to manage it. And so if that's you, just confess that to him in the quiet of your heart. Just confess it to him. Say, that's me, Jesus. I'm sorry. I just confess that. My, I confess my unbelief. There are others of us here. And maybe he's speaking to us about all three of these. That's probably me. But uh, other, uh, uh, perhaps Jesus is speaking to us about our pride. How prone we are to comparison and envy. Wanting for ourselves any glory and blessing that other people are experiencing. We want that for ourselves. Or how prone we are to create these us versus them categories, racially or politically or whatever, looking down on other people rather than valuing them. If that's, if that's you, if that's me, let's just take a moment in the quiet of our heart and just confess that. Jesus, forgive us. We confess our pride and our envy and our self-righteous superiority. Or maybe Jesus is speaking to you about your tendency, our tendency to give him lip service, joyfully singing praises to him in worship services, but then choosing to do our own thing the rest of the week. Or we're not following very well. Would you, would you confess that? If that's what you're wrestling with, would you confess that to him? Now, you can just keep it an attitude of prayer here, but here, here's the good news, folks. We have a Savior who forgives. <laughs> we have a Savior who welcomes us into his presence, who fills us with his spirit. Jesus died on the cross for all of our sin, for all of our mistakes and our failures and our shame. And today, we're going to be receiving this truth in a tangible way by receiving the Lord's Supper. We have several tables set up around the room. During the worship time, when the worship begins here, you can, at any point during that, you can come up to a table or back to a table, come to a table, just take a piece of bread, which represents Christ's body given for you, and dip it in the juice, which represents Christ's blood that was shed for you. And then eat that in remembrance of what Christ has done. You don't have to be a member of Christ community, a partner, a right? You don't have to be a regular attender of this church to partake. If you have confessed your sin to Jesus, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you're trusting him as Savior, maybe you're opening your heart right now to him as Savior. If you have done that, we invite you to partake today. And as we partake, here's what I want all of us to hear and to focus on. Listen very carefully. If you are struggling with unbelief, 
This table is for you. If you are struggling with pride, this table is for you. If you are struggling with giving lip service to Jesus, this table is for you. The only way we can truly follow Jesus is through the power and the presence of Jesus. So Jesus, we come to you. We come to you in worship. We thank you for your word, for speaking to our hearts. And we come to these tables in in just a few moments, remembering the awesome Savior that you are. And we receive your grace and your forgiveness and your life. And in our hearts, we afresh say yes to following you. We love you, Jesus.